All right, everybody, welcome to Remnant. How are we doing tonight? Excellent. My name is Frank, and I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here tonight. And um, I, I just, you know, every week I come here, and I'm just blown away by what God does. And I look out over our congregation, and I, I see what God's doing in our lives. And, and it just brings me back to this idea, this, this reality, that we're all desperately in need of God. And that's what's happened to almost all of us. We've got to a point in our life where we tried to do it ourselves. We tried to, to walk our own walk. We tried to clean ourselves up. We tried to make ourselves presentable. We tried to do it all right, and our lives just didn't go the way we thought they would. And then somehow, God kind of stepped into our lives and started drawing us towards Him. And the things that we'd been stiff-arming suddenly seemed to make sense. And maybe you came and you started studying the Bible. Or, or maybe you're here and you don't even know why you're here. Maybe, maybe you just showed up. And you're not exactly sure what's going on. You're not exactly sure how to even handle tonight. I just want to let you know this is a safe place. It's a safe place to hear God's Word. It's a challenging place to be open to receive it. And that's what's happened to many of us. We came here studying God. We wanted to learn more about Jesus. We wanted to learn more about what was happening in our lives. And as we began to study about God, we, we began to realize that we were having this relationship, that things were happening inside of us, that, that, that there, this God was actually speaking to us and, and shaping us and guiding us. And, well, actually, we came here for information and we fell in love with Jesus. And so every week we just come back and we, we try to learn more and we try to surrender more and we try to allow him to transform us more. And, and so we open his word almost um, with a sense of awe. Because truthfully, the idea that the God of the universe would write to us is incredible when you think about it. And we've been talking about the things he wrote to us about what's to happen in the future. And last week I talked about the prophecy that's in the Bible and, and how God told us in advance what was going to happen so that we would believe. And if you didn't see last week's sermon, I really encourage you to go back and, and watch it. I rarely do that, but it sets up the tone of the entire series that we're talking about. We are talking about in this series what Jesus called the signs of the times. Things that would happen that should tell us that his return is near. And it's interesting that most people, when they study end times, they look for events. Who's the Antichrist? When is it going to happen? What country is going to do what? And one of the things that I shared with you last week that I want to remind us of is that what we're really looking here for are the spiritual things that are happening around us. That end times is really a spiritual event of good and evil, God defeating Satan, and the earth is the battleground. And we are participants in that process. And the verse that I showed you last week that I want to remind you of is this one. It's out of Ephesians. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. And against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. That's what end times is about. What we've been seeing is that... There's this moment that's going to occur when Jesus is literally and physically going to step back onto earth and he's coming back this time to set things right. The first time he came so that he could die on the cross, he came as a lamb, he came announced to shepherds, he came in an in a almost weak way and paid a price for us. The second time he comes back, the Bible is very clear. He is coming back as a conquering warrior to judge the world. We are warned, I said last week, over 50 times in the Bible. 27% of every, all Scripture involves predicting and projecting the future. Over 300 prophecies about Jesus' life, not one of them has been wrong yet. And we mentioned last week that Jesus told us there would be signs. But the signs of the times that Jesus talks about are the signs that point to his physically returning to earth on the Mount of Olives during a time of tribulation to bring in the battle of Armageddon. And we'll get to all this, so don't let that freak you out. But many people who study scriptures, myself included, believe that before that event occurs, there will be a rapture of God's people, a rapture of the church, that we will literally be called up to God to meet him in the clouds, that he doesn't come to earth, we go to him. 
The rapture, according to Scripture, is a signless event. There are no signs to point to the rapture. We talked about this last week. The rapture could happen at any moment. It could happen before I finish. I hope it does. But if it does, there's nothing. We're not waiting on anything to happen before the rapture of God's people would happen. However, Jesus told the disciples that there are going to be signs that point to a time of tribulation. A time when evil will begin to rule in the world, that the evil one will have more authority and more power, and that God will eventually have to return to set things right, to establish what God wants to happen in the world. Those things, that time, has several warning signs that we're supposed to be paying attention to. Last week we talked about that one of the things that has to happen, and if you think about it, it's really logical. If I want to bring the Antichrist to the world to lead people against God, the first thing I have to do is prepare the soil. I've got to prepare people to receive somebody who is going to lead them in a direction away from God. And we talked about this last week. We talked about apostasy. And apostasy really means uh, teaching against God. If God says this, I believe this. If God says this, I believe this. And we talked last week about the apostasy of humanism. That what we're seeing in our world is a massive movement in the last 15 years particularly where people are beginning to believe that they can be God. That they don't need God. And it's different than it's been in the past. In the past what we've seen are people who just have this sense of, well, I doubt God. I don't think that's really what's happening. He might be there, he might not. Humanism and what we're seeing, the apostasy that is the flashing light of end times is, no, it's not that I doubt God. I'm openly challenging. God. And we're seeing it across our world. And we talked about it last week, so I won't re-preach it. But it's the ultimate original sin. Remember that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, Satan used this argument to try to get them to sin. And he said, look, you can be like God. And ever since then, everything that Satan has done has been in that realm. You can be like God. That's what humanism is all about. I don't need God. I can be like God. I can be my own God. I can establish my own truth. I can establish my own judgment. I can establish the things that I'm comfortable with. I can define for myself how to live in this world, and, and, and I don't really need God. And in the last 15 years or so, we've seen this apostasy, this false teaching of humanism explode in our world. We spoke last week of if you're going to send the Antichrist to the world, you've got to start reestablishing new values. You have to get people to start worshiping man. And that's what we're seeing in our world right now. The Antichrist is going to draw people in to follow him because there is this sense among people that we want somebody to come and say, yes, we can do what we want. Yes, we're good people. Yes, everything that we want to do is a good idea. Yes, we can define our own truth. We can be the center of our own universe. We, we can be God. And what the world is going to be looking for And don't miss this. What humanists are looking for is a new Messiah. Someone who will bring the utopian peace to the world. Somebody who will bet on human ingenuity and human intelligence. And they'll be the ultimate humanist. And people will flock to him like crazy because right now they are being sold a lie. And the lie is, is that you can be God, that you can determine your own destiny. And once you start looking for humanism, you see it everywhere. Let me give you an example. Our culture is embracing humanism like we've never embraced it before. And we blew this out a lot last week, so please go back. Do you remember Whitney Houston's song, The Greatest Love of All? Do you remember the words? Everybody's searching for a hero. People need someone to look up to. I've never found anyone to fulfill my needs. A lonely place to be, so I learned to depend on me. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadows. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I live as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take my dignity because the greatest love of all is happening to me. I found the greatest love of all inside of me. 
The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. It is a humanist anthem. I don't need God. I don't need God's love. I don't need God's protection. I can be my own God. And all I got to do is find that part within me that, that is spiritual, that is wonderful. And if I tap into that, I don't need God. John Lennon, imagine one of the ultimate anthems of humanism. Imagine that there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Dear God by Ecstasy, 1970s band. They actually had in their text, God, a close listen. Did you make mankind after we made you? The hurt I see helps to compound that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is just somebody's unholy hoax. It's interesting that the leader of that band stopped performing in 1982 because his anxiety was so high he couldn't go out on stage anymore because he had psychosomatic paralysis. But he didn't depend on God. Some are more subtle. I am mine by Pearl Jam. I know that I was born. I know that I'll die. The in-between is mine and I am mine. Dave Matthew bands, what are you? He puts forth a song about the importance of individualism saying, hoping to God on high is like clinging to straws while drowning. Billy Joel. They showed you a statue. They told you to pray. They built you a temple and locked you away, but they never told you the price you would pay for the things that you might have done. They say there's a heaven for those who wait. Some say it's better. I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners and cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. We're seeing this message infiltrate movies, books, television shows, music, across the world. Not just in the U.S., but across the world. The first thing we talked about, the first sign of end times is an ism, and it's humanism. We spoke about how Satan is preparing the world for the arrival of the Antichrist by changing the way we see ourselves, by changing the way we think. Humanism is a flashing warning light on the dashboard of end times. But there's another light flashing next to it. That has everybody's attention, and it's the second ism of end times. And it's important because there's not one sign that's going off that's making everybody go, wow, what's going on? It's like the entire dashboard of end times is just lighting up and flashing everywhere. There's signs everywhere. And it's interesting that Jesus came into the world at the perfect moment. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but when Jesus entered the world, the Bible says it was the perfect moment. He couldn't have come a minute earlier. He couldn't have come a minute later. The Bible tells us that it was busting at the seams, ready to receive him, Galatians 4.3. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, God says, when people were enslaved, did, did you see that? They were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That, that's the false teaching. That's the mind's idea. That's not spirit-led. That is flesh-led. That is humans trying to define the world for themselves. When the world was so full, when people were so lost, there was a perfect time. And we know from looking back at that time that it was a great time for Jesus to come with a gospel message. The Roman Empire had taken over the world. They had built highways, all sorts of places. There was a common language that was very well adapted to the scriptures. There was a, a welcomeness to receive discussion about spiritual things. When Jesus came, the world was prime both for a savior and for dissemination of the gospel message. Prior to his arrival, God had been relatively silent. Jesus had an incredible message. But the message can only be as effective as its reach. That was the challenge for the disciples who were left on the Mount of Olives when Jesus ascended to heaven. They had to wonder, how are we going to get this message to the world? How, how are we going to share people what we've seen? 
Well, God, it turns out, had laid out the Roman roads. He, he had developed new advances in travel. He, he developed an acceptance of people talking about spiritual things. He, he had persecution come into early believers, which caused them to disseminate. You see, God had the message, and he also had the plan on how that message was going to get out. God tells the prophet Habakkuk that the end times will be like that too. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The vision of end times, God tells his prophet, it's coming. If you don't think it's coming, don't give up. It'll be there. Just be patient and wait. There's a perfect time for these events to unfold. Paul told the Romans, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What Paul is saying here is, look, Jesus came for the Jewish people as their Messiah. They rejected him. And because they rejected him, the message has gone out to the entire world. And we live in an era called the church age or the age of the Gentiles. And right now, God is delivering his message to all the people, hoping that they will surrender and come to him. But there's going to be a day when that church age ends. Until then, we are living in the church age. And we're waiting for the fullness to occur for Jesus to return. The message went out to other people. The church age will end at the rapture of the church. And that will signal the tribulation part. And don't worry, we're going to go through all that later. The second flashing light, the, the light, humanism is flashing like crazy. But there's another ism that is flashing, and it's globalism. And humanism and globalism are huge one-two punches. Because what we're seeing is our world is becoming very small. Our world is basically coming together in ways that they couldn't have dreamed about 100 years ago. We're seeing humans interacting on a worldwide spectrum. Not only are we adapting, many people adapting a humanist view, uh, a need to not have God, but they're also developing a global view uh, of a perfect world, a perfect utopia, where man is the ultimate, smart, bright, can do anything. We can make ourselves live forever. We can reproduce ourselves. We can develop clones. Man has every potential. And what they're doing is the world is starting to grow together. Communication that we once thought was impossible is now commonplace. And in order for Satan to get the doctrine of humanism and to move the entire world to apostasy, the world needs to be in a place where a global rethink of God not only occurs, but can be quickly and easily disseminated around the world. While the message of Oprah and Billy Joel and John Lennon is not new, what is new is the ability to promote that message across the world in an instant and reach millions of people. Nobody believed that could happen in 1950. That you could have an event occur and everybody in the entire world could watch it, engage with it, and know it within minutes. So God tells us in his word to look for globalism. One of the flashing lights is going to be this globalism. The nations of the world will begin to mesh together around common purposes. And just like we talked last week that humanism begins in the book of Genesis, it turns out so does globalism. Globalism, well, let me take you back. God was upset that he had created man because they turned so far from him. And so he sent Noah. He, Noah built an ark and he sent a flood, right? And then the floodwaters recede and God tells Noah's kids and Noah, go populate the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Go spread out and let's have a do-over. God essentially pushed the reset button on earth. But what we find out is that people still don't follow God. Sadly, even after the flood and after living through that, people still continued to buy the lie that they too could be God. 
Genesis 11.1. 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the entire earth. Now remember, what did God tell them? Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Okay. What are they doing? We're going to stay in one location. We're going to ignore what God says to do. We're going to build a tower. So if the world floods again, we can overcome what God did. And we'll be able to get to heaven on our own. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, there are one people, and they have all one language. And this is, the be- this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, it's interesting that what God wanted was, okay, I want you to spread out, but since you won't spread out, I'm going to confuse your languages. And then I'm going to spread you out, and you'll have to go throughout the world. Because he says something very interesting that we're going to unpack in a minute, if they're left to their own devices, there's nothing they can't accomplish. And so what happens is, he says, okay, we need to be careful, because when you get a whole bunch of people together who are sold out on the idea that they can be their own God... It's extremely dangerous what they can do in and of themselves. And what we see in Genesis is a foreshadowing of the events leading up to the end times. And we also see a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. Interesting that the leader of Babel was a man named Nimrod. Nimrod in the Bible was the great grandson of Noah through the line of Cush. He's described as one of the mighty men to appear on earth after the great flood. After the great flood, there had been a group of giants, mighty men on the earth, and also afterwards. From looking at biblical texts and ancient documents, it's clear that Nimrod was one of these giant men. A mighty man, tall in stature, strong, much larger than the average man. Besides being the founder of the infamous Babel... And many other cities, Nimrod was a man with great physical strength, giant stature, and everybody followed him. According to the historian Josephus, Nimrod said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to be drawn to the world again, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to reach, and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. So Nimrod is this leader who is angry at God. For what he's done, and he shows up in early Genesis. Now, there are other instances of giants in Scripture. They seem to be connected to the line of Ham through Nimrod. When Moses sent spies into Canaan, they reported seeing giants there. They felt like grasshoppers in front of them. Canaanites were descended from Canaan, the son of Ham, and related to Nimrod. And of course, we know David fought a giant. There's a lot of end times speculation about these giants and what will happen in the end times. I told you we weren't going to get into speculation, so I'll leave that for you to review on your own. But what I want you to see is that there is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist with a very humanistic, we hate you God who wants to organize people around a common theme. And the common theme is we can be our own God. Construction of the Tower of Babel ended with a show of God's power and he confused people and he sent them across the world and he made it impossible for them to communicate with one another. Nimrod was undoubtedly a powerful, charismatic hero figure of ancient world who actually attempted to build his own tower to heaven and organize the people to do it. Why are we going into that? Well, I told you that there are themes that run through the Bible from beginning to end. The Bible is written over 1,500 years by more than 40 people, and these themes are so consistent. 
and so deep and so reflective that you know God had to write this book. So early in the Bible, we see this person, Nimrod, this leader, arrive and organize the people to be against God immediately after the flood. He had a message of humanism. And like Nimrod, the Antichrist will have a desire to organize the world around that theology as well. He will have a desire to undo what God did at Babel. Think about that. God dispersed people and gave them different languages. Okay? The Antichrist stands for everything God is against. So the Antichrist is going to try to bring everybody back together under globalism. Remember the warning that God gave for mixing up languages. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Don't miss it. This is the beginning of what they will do. Odd, right? He didn't say this is the beginning of what they might do. He didn't say this is the beginning of what they could do. He said, look at this moment. This is the beginning of what they will do. You see, they've organized themselves to try to be their own God. And yes, I scattered them. And yes, they moved around the world. And yes, I put this down. But there's going to be a day where they will accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. Then God goes further. Nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. He's not saying that they will become God or that they could ever out of their own effort reach heaven or restore their fallen state. What God is telling us is that if we're left to our own fallen minds, we can accomplish the things we can think of. We can deceive ourselves and convince the world that we are like God. God is talking about the potential that humans have. Separated from God's spirit to rebel against God. He's saying that organizing themselves against God is the beginning of what they will do in the future. And they will be successful at it. Way back in Genesis, God is saying, look, this organization thing they're doing, it's not new. And it's going to happen again. And there's going to be a day in the future when they're far more successful at it. And the whole account of what happened at Babel with its anti-God dictator, its organized rebellion against God, its direct distrust of God's promises shows that man had not gotten any better since the flood. God may have been offended because they refused to spread out to fill the world the way he had instructed them to do. Likely offended because they believed they could reach heaven on their own effort. And extremely offended that they bought the same lie that Eve bought and Adam bought in the garden, that they could be their own God. There's pride, there's arrogance. The belief that they could actually be God. So God confuses languages to keep us from humanism. If we can't communicate, if we're culturally different, if we're geographically dispersed, it's almost impossible for us to organize globally to reject God. But God says one day it's going to happen. One day, the way you're going to know that the end times are coming is this dispersion, this confusion of languages, this inability to communicate, this inability to organize, it's all going to change. And all of a sudden, the world is going to go back to being a lot like Babel. Just as God came down to break up their language, one day he's going to return to earth to break up this ideology. The breaking of language at Babel is deep. Interesting that when the Spirit of God came to the earth in Acts at Pentecost, it was language that they all understood. It was as if God was giving a foreshadowing, saying, I confused everybody. I disperse them because in their humanism, in their worship of themselves, they're dangerous. They can accomplish anything. They, anything they set their mind to, they could probably do. And, and it's going to be dangerous. 
But then when Jesus comes and we're resur he's resurrected, we're resurrected with him, we receive the Holy Spirit, there's this evidence of languages. And what he's essentially saying is, okay, you're my children. We're going to have a spiritual language that we can all understand. We're going to undo through Jesus some of what's happened in the past. But the rest of the world doesn't have that. And so when asked about the signs and the timing of his return, it's interesting that Jesus referred to this time in Genesis. Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. But as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The closest Satan ever came to ruling the world was when Nimrod was leading. He was Satan's man at Babel. He organized the people. He taught apostasy. He centralized them into an effective force of rebellion. So could it happen again? Jesus said not only could it happen, it will happen. There will be a time, a sign, that the world should pay attention to. It's going to be like the times of Noah. We're going to have somebody arrive like Nimrod. They're going to organize people to accomplish things against God. Never before did such a thing seem even possible. I mean, think about how impossible this would sound to somebody in the 1930s. The entire world is going to organize around a leader. They're going to be able to communicate. They're going to be able to, to spread messages. They're going to be able to have a new theology, a new way of looking at the world, a new doctrine. There's going to be a time when people are convinced that they can believe, be their own God. A time when people who are dispersed around the world into different cultures, different languages, different religions, the world will shrink and all these people will become united again together. We will see a globalism occur. And that flashing light of globalism is what allows the message of humanism to spread across the world. And that's what's got everybody paying attention right now. Because not only do we have a huge move in the last 15 years towards humanism, but the world is getting smaller and smaller. And that message is now able to be spread across the world. And people around the world are being united against God. While globalism is a key sign of the times, it's not just our ability to communicate. It is the concept of becoming a single global community. Of undoing all that God did at Babel for the purpose of establishing ourselves as God. It is the doctrine of humanism actually being implemented on the world stage. What globalism is, is doing is it's saying, look, not only... Do we believe that humans should be worshipped and we should be our own God and we have our own power to do our own things? But we think the entire world is open to that concept, that we can spread that across the world. And we're going to get the world not only to think about humanism, but to think about utopia. We're going to get the world to think about what would really happen if everybody got their act together and we protected the planet and we protected everybody. And there was no more wars and there was no more fighting and all the nations got together and cultures didn't have problems and we could all communicate. If we could just lift up the human, everything would be great. Globalism is the ultimate expression of humanism. Maybe we can all be one culture. Maybe we can all have one language. Maybe we can all get along. Maybe we can have a worldwide religious tolerance. Maybe we can solve all the world's problems without God. You see, we're really smart. Maybe we could all share all of our resources. Maybe humans, if we could just look deep in ourselves, we could create our own heaven right here on earth. A utopian society separate from any authority or any need for God. We can trust our minds. We can trust science to get us to live forever. We'll learn how to clone humans. We'll decipher and replicate DNA. We'll grow organs. We'll freeze and resurrect people. We can be, wait for it, like God. And such an incredible humanistic society is going to need an incredible global leader. 
someone who embraces new global thinking, somebody who's enlightened, somebody who can bring peace to the world, someone who removes weapons, somebody who can fix the world's ecological problems, someone who can unite the world as one people, breaking down barriers, divisions, walls, national borders. The humanists need, well, they, they, they need a Messiah. And in steps the Antichrist. Just like the prophets foretold thousands of years ago. Jump from now from Genesis to Revelation. God's speaking of the beast of the Antichrist. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Blaspheming his name and dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. All authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. God's word tells us that the Antichrist will lead a one world government, a one world military, a one world economy, a one world religion, and he'll receive worship from the entire world. He even goes on to tell us that he will be able to unite people around one language, around one nation. The necessary ingredients and tools for the world government are present for the first time in the history of civilization. We could actually see this happening, right? I mean, the ability to communicate, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. You want to describe our world right now? Many will run to and fro, and knowledge is increasing. God told the prophet Daniel that at the end times, one of the signals, one of the flashing lights will be that man will run to and fro and we'll see an expansion of knowledge like we've never seen before. The ultimate worship of the human. Many have interpreted this passage to mean that everybody's going to be anxious and that we're all going to have one big Valium anxiety party. That's not what I think this means. When he says people are going to run to and fro, what I think that means is they're going to be able to travel multiple places. They're going to be able to go all over the world. They're going to run to and fro, and they're running. It hit me this week. I was watching the news. One minute I was in Libya. The next minute I was in Iraq. The next minute I was in New York. Then Chicago. Without even leaving my phone. I can go anywhere in the world to and fro. I can reach any place. All they got to do is turn it on. If not, I could travel almost anywhere within a day or so. Think about how crazy this would have been to somebody in the 1900, early 1900s. It wasn't even possible. You didn't have a clue what was going on outside your county, much less across the world. Yet today, nothing happens that we don't know about in about two or three minutes. How is it possible? Knowledge is going to increase, God says. When you see knowledge increasing, pay attention. Man will set out to do what they desire to do. Remember what God said about Babel. They will set out to do what they desire to do. Nothing will be impossible for them. Enter the internet. The computer chip, the satellite, the computer, the cell phone, the smartphone. Enter the language of visual media. This is something I never thought about before until we went to Africa recently. And Israel as well. I didn't understand the language, but I could turn on and see the pictures and know what was going on. We're able to visually communicate around the world with pictures. All I got to know is where it's happening, and I see the picture. I can see there's a revolt, there's a rebellion. We have the ability to see things around the world. There are now digital language translations. All these things are bringing humans closer and closer together. President Trump, regardless of what you think of him, has shown the power of a world leader who has direct access to millions of people on Twitter in an instant. Think how crazy that would have sounded to somebody looking for end times in the early 1900s. Social media is now a more powerful communicator than television or print media, and there are no filters and no one's in charge of the message. 
The internet is global and no one owns it. There are almost no restrictions and it's a worldwide platform for communication. So I thought I would just let you guys have a trivia game, kind of break this up. I want to go through some of the inventions that have happened in the last 35 years and see if you can tell me what year they happened. Okay, are you ready? The first transatlantic television by satellite. What do you think? It's going to take a long time if we spend a ton of time on this, okay? Turns out it was 1961. The first trans-Pacific television by satellite. 1963, and the first thing transmitted from the U.S. to the Pacific was John F. Kennedy's funeral. Fiber optic cable. When do you think fiber optic cable came in? If you remember, fiber optic cable allowed us to transmit 100 gigabytes a second, to, to transmit information so much faster than it had ever been done before. What year do you think fiber optic cables came in? Y'all are bold. 1975. How about the first personal computer? The first PC? 1975. How about UPC barcodes and scanners? When did you see those show up? 1976. What about GPS locators? Well, it turns out GPS came in 1978, but it was only released for non-military use by President Carter Clinton in 2000. How about the first commercially available cell phone? 1983. Dynatac by Motorola. It weighed almost two pounds. It cost $4,000. <laughs> when did the World Wide Web show up? Anybody? 1990. When did the United States start the U.S. Genome Project? To try to clone and create humans. 1990. When did Skype come in? 2003. Facebook? 2004. YouTube? 2005. The iPhone? 2007. <laughs> Kindle, y'all have my notes. Kindle, 2007. Artificial intelligence with IBM Watson, 2011. In 2011, IBM Watson competed on Jeopardy and defeated the two greatest champions of all time. We can create intelligence. Think about what all this stuff can be done if it's in the wrong hands. Think about the power of being able to communicate with the world. If you can get everybody to read electronic books, you can determine what books they have access to. If you can control the internet, if you can control social media, the propaganda power is incredible through television, social media, Twitter, and other means, and messaging becomes global in a matter of minutes. Our global economic agreements and embargoes make it possible for a world dictator to seize control that would have seemed impossible just a generation ago. I mean, think about it. We live in a world now where a few individuals who can get their access to a nuclear weapon in a briefcase could bring down an entire country through blackmail and bribing, a power they've never had before. In terms of economics, the Bible tells us that the world ruler will have absolute control of the economy and no one will be able to buy or sell without his permission. And we're moving to a cashless society where almost everything is now electronic. Electronic fund transfers, Apple Pay debit cards are now routine for the first time in human history. The use of electronic movement of money has almost eliminated the need for an actual cash currency. Hundreds of millions of dollars move electronically every day. By the way, the 1970 is when the first ATM machine showed up. Today, the technology exists. Electronic media is an incredible tool. 
Access to the internet phones and satellite phones reach around the world. Missiles can be fired and targeted by GPS to almost any location in the world in 30 minutes. No leader in the past has ever had the opportunity to threaten any person of the world and blackmail it into submission with the threat of extinction. No ruler in history has had this kind of power potentially available for use. The time does not seem that far away when such a government foretold in Scripture long before anybody could dream of such a thing will become a reality. The only thing holding it back is some worldwide catastrophic event that makes people surrender to such a world leader and to hope for something better than what they've experienced. Something like a rapture, perhaps where millions of people suddenly disappear, where the economy eventually crashes, where people are now left trying to understand what's going on, where they need to find some answers and they all pull together around this humanist idea and they all come together and believe and all of a sudden someone shows up who tells them what they want to hear. Our world is shrinking. Nations are blending. Cultural distinctions are blending. Races are blending. Religions are blending. Travel has mixed up cultures like never before. Most people don't live anywhere near where they actually were born and grew up. Many migrate to other nations. This world is a very, very different place than it was just 50 years ago. Our economic markets are mixing. What happens economically in one part of the world now has an impact everywhere that was unheard of in the past. Almost everything we buy is made in several countries, shipped over all sorts of places, and is no longer unique to a nation or culture. The United States used to be called a melting pot, but now the entire world is a melting pot. Humanism and globalism are becoming the norm, just as God said would happen thousands of years ago. The ability to disseminate information across the world, to control economic markets, to control the electronic transmission of information, to control human genes, to be able to control what people can see, read, think, and experience. It's Satan's fertile soil for the arrival of the Antichrist. And we live right now in a world where a very small number of people who have a very powerful weapon that can fit in a briefcase could blackmail the entire superpowers of the world into submission. The world is changing, and next week we're going to look at how the national scope around the world is beginning to shape just as the prophets foretold. We are clearly living in end times. Things are happening that could never have happened before, and we are seeing these lights flash on and off. So what are Christians supposed to do? I mean, what do we do with this? Okay, so all right, we realize it. We're living in end times. The rapture could happen at any minute. Jesus is going to come back. There's a time of tribulation. It's going to be horrible. What do we do? Paul said this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. We have to understand that this battle that's happening is for our mind. That's the only place Satan can attack us. Many have elevated thinking. Worship themselves and live arrogantly and defiantly as humanists, stiff-arming God. So Paul tells us that we should present ourselves as a sacrifice doing whatever God wants us to do. That we should worship God in our spirit, that we refuse to conform to the world, that we should capture every thought, that when we see things come across the screen, we don't just routinely go, oh, that's a great song. We refuse to conform to the world. We should hold these thoughts. We should think about the messages of things that are bombarding us. We should reject the world's message of humanism. And through that testing, we discover the will of God. Peter specifically spoke about end times, and he said this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Peter says, look, we need to focus on holiness. In other words, we need to hold on to truth. We need to reject the lies of humanism. We need to wait, but we need to wait actively. We aren't just sitting around looking at the sky wondering when Jesus is going to come back. We have work to do. Peter doesn't tell us to head for the hills, to build a fortress, to start stockpiling food or weapons. Instead, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? As we get closer and closer to Jesus coming back, it is more and more important that we hold on to the truth of the scripture and that we share it with as many people as we possibly can. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and on the day of eternity. Amen. And what he's saying is, look, when the world's starting to go crazy, when you start seeing these signs, it is more important now than ever that you hold on to that book with everything you have. That you're on your knees praying, that you're trying to reach other people, that you are motivated to move forward because the signs are there and it's obvious to those who are paying attention to them. Live your life as holy. Reach out to other people in love. Share with them the reason why you have the hope. As Peter sees it, end-time Christians are called to do one thing. Practice holiness and do good whenever and wherever they can. Paul said the same thing in Galatians. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is a time when Christians should be loving each other and loving the world with a message of truth. It is not a time to water down the message. It's not a time to try to attract people to tell them what they want to hear. It's a time to point to the Word of God and explain to them what it says. And it's not just my job, it's your job. The end time signs of humanism and globalism are flashing like never before. But they're just two of the signs. There are several others that we're going to cover next week. And all these events should not be a surprise to those who know scriptures. God is sovereign and in control of everything. He knows the future and he absolutely will control what happens. I want to read to you some words by Isaiah the prophet. And I'll close with this. Here's what he said. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not even yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will do it. Prophet Isaiah speaking for God, God telling us, remember this. I'm going to declare things about the end from the beginning so you'll know. I've spoken. It's going to happen. Don't be surprised. You see, when we remember who God is and we really remember what this book is about, we see that God told us not only what to watch for, but what to do. Because God controls the future, then it stands to reason that when the Bible speaks about what's going to happen, that we can believe it. The Bible says concerning the future that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Other prophets, other predictors like Nostradamus and others have been wrong, but the Bible has never once been wrong. Everything that the prophets said would happen has happened exactly as they said it would happen. The final word tonight comes from the book of Titus. 
I want you to meditate on this verse this week. Write it down. It's Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. And when I say meditate on this verse, I mean get alone with God and read this verse over and over and over. Chew on it. Think about it. Apply it to what we're learning. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, he's telling Titus, is, look, well, you've got to renounce worldly passions. You've got to renounce ungodliness. You can't sit by and be quiet when the world is falling for humanism. You can't sit by and be quiet when globalism is spreading that message across the world. When your family and your friends and your coworkers and people you know are being led down the great path that leads to their destruction, how dare you stand quiet? We, we, we don't have this in our heart yet. We don't have the urgency that comes with an awareness of what's really happening in our world. The signs are everywhere. And there are people right now who are buying humanism. And, and this verse says, exhort and rebuke with all authority. That doesn't mean go out and beat people up. It means share with them in love what's really happening to them. Explain to them the lies that they've bought. Tell them what God wants them to know. And then it says, let no one disregard you. That means don't give up. That means when they say they don't want to hear about it the first time, keep pursuing it in love. The times are coming to an end. I, I don't know how to say it any other way. If you read these scriptures, if you believe that everything God wrote is true, there is no way that we're not heading towards those times. And we are closer today than any human has ever been in the history of humanity. No one has been closer to Jesus' return than we are right now. We are to lovingly but firmly reject the lies of humanism. We are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And as we wait for Jesus, we are to be self-controlled, upright, and living godly lives. And we are to be zealous about doing good works. The flashing lights of humanism and globalism just serve to motivate us, to motivate us to be more ready, to motivate us to go after our families and friends, to motivate us to make sure we are ready and to make sure that we're not caught off guard. Let's pray. God, it's incredible to live in these times. It's incredible to live in the times that we see now. Everything in your scriptures are just coming together. One after another. We haven't even talked about the most obvious stuff yet. Because God, this is a spiritual battle for our minds. Satan is going to try to take the world by leading us into the lie that we can be God. Just think about how offensive that must be to you. So God, forgive us when we have bought that lie. Forgive us when we've gone on a pride ride and believe that we actually could do this ourselves. God, there may be many right now in this room or listening online or who will hear this later who realize that, that they've bought the lies of humanism, that they've rejected you, and that everything in your book is true. So God, I just pray for those who are not yet following you, that you would move their hearts, that you would move in their minds, that you would allow them to see the truth. And I don't know, God, how they got to this message or how they got here, but, but somehow, God, would you just use this to change their future? Allow them to break through the pride and the walls that Satan has put up and embrace you. God, this world's coming to an end. We don't always live like it. So, God, would you ignite in us a passion to reach people? To quit worrying about what people are going to say about us or think about us and to be more concerned about the salvation of the people around us. God, we may lose relationships over this, but you told us not to let anybody distract us. 
So God, help us to be bold like your disciples prayed for in Acts. Give us boldness to tell people the gospel. And Lord, if you're willing, bring us back next week so we can continue to look at these incredible signs that you gave us so that we could be ready. We ask it in Jesus' name.